Good data visualization can catapult a news story or research article from ho-hum to extraordinary. A new book series is exploring the careers of information graphic visionaries, and that's the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Department of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me, as always, is regular panelist John Baylor, Emeritus Professor of Statistics at Miami University. Our guest today is R.J. Andrews. Andrews is a practicing data storyteller and creator of several books on information graphics. He helps organizations solve high-stake problems by using visual metaphors and information graphics, and he's recently produced designs for the White House, Google, and MIT. Andrews' recently published Information Graphic Visionaries is a new book series from Visionary Press celebrating spectacular data visualization, creators. He's here to talk with us about the series and data storytelling more widely. Thank you so much for joining us today, RJ. Howdy. I guess just to start the conversation, where did this this book series come from? I have to say they're really extraordinarily beautiful and the fact that these can be created and have these these visualizations recreated at such a scale is is nice and they are just beautiful books. I wonder sort of what the the impetus was for them. Oh, uh, thank you so much. So part of part of the goal of making the books was to make beautiful books. Today in 2024, if book is to be real and not a PDF, it has to uh, it has to deserve it. Honestly, um, you know, most books you know are should just be a PDF or a blog post or maybe even a thread. Uh, and so if you're going to make a book real, you're going to go through all that work of actually printing it and shipping it around the world. Like it has to be really worth. Uh, existing in the real world. And so that's that's the type of book that we set out to do. There is a lot of joy and optimism behind behind these books, but there's also a lot of cynicism and frustration that propels them. Uh, so I think, what is the joy and optimism? I think that the joy and optimism is um, all about recognizing that data graphics are only becoming more and more important and that books about data graphics are starting to mature to a point that data graphics are ready for this level of uh, critique, scrutiny, but also elevation, right? Because when we make beautiful books on a subject, what do we do? We are elevating that subject. And so that is one of sort of the, the broader like strategic goals of this book is to call people attention to data graphics uh, as something worthy of praise in the same way that the Mona Lisa's worthy of praise in the same way that E equals MC square is worthy of praise. I'm curious about the cynicism that is propelling them. If the optimism is let's let's look at these things as art that we should appreciate and their history, what is the cynicism behind them? I think the cynicism sort of uh, arrived from some of my early publishing experiences with traditional uh, the traditional publishing industry. Uh, and so this book series is an entrepreneurial effort as much of uh, as a, a creative effort. And so, uh, uh, frankly, the first time I published a book, the books fell apart, the inks were out of register, and they just, they just weren't beautiful. Like, like, why bother? Why bother making a book that falls apart and the inks are blurry? And so uh, I went above and beyond, uh, not by myself, but with you know, an international team of people who are the best in the world at making beautiful books in order to bring these beautiful books, you know, onto, <laughs> onto the table. And, uh, and, and, and it was, it was worth a lot, but it like, it, like it, 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 it was worth the effort. Um, and, and it really was because they're here and there's something that you're proud of. And the act of making something beautiful is in some sense, the reward itself. 
These books were created in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic when frankly, everything was pretty, pretty like not happy. And um, this project gave you know, our team an opportunity every day to go into a space that was joyful. It was also a space that we could completely control. There was nobody telling us how to do it. And so it was sort of, you know, when everything is sort of uh, horrible and awful and, and you don't have control, this project was a way of us sort of asserting our, ourselves in the world. You know, I, I think you've, you nailed it in terms of the, the coffee table book. I mean, I, I found myself just paging through and really enjoying these images. And, and just for, for folks that are listening, you know, there's, there's a, a, one of the books is on mortality and health diagrams, Florence Nightingale. Uh, another is the graphic method. And a, a third is the maps of history. And, and you know, I have a, as a, a confession as someone who, uh, who visited the Florence Nightingale Museum when it was opened in London, in part because of just so being so fascinated with her work and also having a spouse who was a nurse. There was sort of a dual, dual interest. And, and the amazing maps of Jon Snow and thinking about the cholera epidemic and all those, all these, these amazingly impactful renderings that I, I found beauty and they were always in my office. So I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a complete fan of, of trying to do this. I, you know, I've got, I got Rosemary rolling her eyes that she thinks, just stop waxing poetic, John. You know, <laughs> ask you know, a question, ask John. Ask a question, will you? You got this guy here. So, so I, as I, as I look at these, these beautiful constructions here, why did you choose these themes, these topics for the books and the contributors that you selected? So these, uh, these three books. So I think the, the, the first question is like, why three books? Why not just one? right? We developed a single book first, okay? And that was Florence Nightingale. And then March 2020 happened and I got pulled away working on the pandemic and everything got stalled for a while. While it was stalled, uh, the other books came together. And from an entrepreneurial perspective, it costs the same amount of money to get somebody's attention on a three book purchase as it does a one book purchase. So why not launch a series? And what's incredible is that um, in our first year of sales, I think 89, 90% of our purchases were of the entire set, not just single volumes, which just completely blew me away, right? Okay, so that's why we do three books. Why these three books? These three books represent the three stories that deserve to be told the most, right? These are the three most spectacular stories from the history of data graphics, you know, from my personal perspective that haven't been told yet, right? Like these are sort of like unknown, like insiders only sort of, like are familiar with these particular stories. And even then the insiders, you know, people like nerds like me, like these stories were underexplored, right? And so there was actually original research necessary to pull them together. Uh, but we have, I mean, there's 20, 30, 40 stories that could be told about the history of data graphics, you know, at a similar level of uh, celebration. You know, it's I, as I was thumbing through the Florence Nightingale book, I was sort of, again, struck by those those graphics that she produced and the people she was working with and how I think, you know, for me, I did not know much about her data work until I started working on this podcast, frankly, and had no idea that was part of who she was. I knew her as as this sort of legendary nursing figure, but not as this person who is creating this data. And I wonder if you could talk through the other two um, individuals that you are profiling in the books and why those two in particular felt like they needed to be included in this series. So the, th uh, the, the three characters, the three visionaries, all are, uh, in, in my head at least, they, they stake out a particular territory, 
And so there's some diversity to them. They're each from a different country. They each had a different profession. They each use graphics, data graphics, to do a different thing, to accomplish a different thing. They each use different types of data graphics. They each uh, operated at a slightly different uh, time period. So there's some diversity to all of them. And so if we go chronologically, the first is an American teacher named Emma Willard. And she used, uh, she used data graphics, particularly maps of history, to educate. And not only to educate, but to sell textbooks. So she is both an educator, an education pioneer. Uh, she's known in America as, as being the early champion of educating girls and young women. Um, but she also sold a million textbooks in her life, right? And so she has this fantastic story where her graphics get, frankly, weirder and weirder as her career progresses. And... And why are they getting like stranger and stranger? Well, one is because she's actually tuning her graphics to be more effective in the classroom, but she's also tuning her graphics to be more effective in the market. She has to stand out from all of her textbook comp uh, competitors. Uh, okay, so that's that's the first volume. That's the green volume. That's Emma Willard. And Emma, the Emma Willard uh, book is, is beautiful. Um, that middle volume is the Nightingale volume, which we've already touched on. Um, and then the final volume is Etienne Jules Marais. And Marais is the first to publish any sort of uh, visual um, history or visual catalog about data graphics. And uh, this is called The Graphic Method. And uh, as, as a, like, a super nerd insider, I love The Graphic Method. The problem with The Graphic Method is that uh, it's been stuck in French for a hundred and some odd years. And so his, his original text is, is gorgeous and all of his illustrations are spectacular, but it's been stuck in French. And like, we got to get it out of French and get it so that like a, a bigger chunk of the world can read it. And so that was the big uh, impetus behind, behind that book. So can you talk a little bit about the, the process of the contributors to this effort? I mean, this is, this is really a remarkable collection. So, so what was needed to, to put this together? And, and there's these massive appendices that are part of it that include some of the original, the original pieces being reproduced. The thumbnail sketch of the team is that each of the specific volumes has a, what we call an editor. Um, and that's the person's name on the cover. And so each volume has, uh, you know, I, I'll say an expert or historian or, or some, somebody basically who's insane enough to devote, you know, a couple years of their life to making this book, you know, come true. So that varies volume to volume. I, I led the Florence Nightingale volume, you know, in that capacity. The, um, but then continuous throughout the book is, is our uh, series designer. And his name's Lorenzo Fanton. He's, uh, he's the Venetian. Uh, he's my Venetian. And he, uh, you know, I'm, I am an amateur uh, book designer. I'm a bibliophile. Uh, I love books. But I don't have the same skill with designing books that I might have with designing a bar chart, which is my expertise. Uh, Lorenzo Fanton can, can take book design and take my ideas and I can lift them as high up as I think it's possible to go. And that is his starting point. He takes that and then he helps it soar even more. And so both from uh, page layout and typography and um, uh, it, 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 image correction and photography of original resources and color correction. So everything for the design all the way through to the production. And we did print all of these um, you know, in his backyard uh, over in Italy, you know, and, and, you know one, of the, one of the finer presses in the world. Um, you know, the paper selection, all, all, all that stuff that really makes the thing feel fantastic. Each of those little decisions matters, and, and Lorenzo led all of that. 
Do you have any plans to expand this series? Uh, yeah. So you have you have these three books here as a starting point. Mm. Any thought of like expanding it to other visionaries who could sort of build on this? Oh yeah, we have a we have a roadmap, you know, with a couple dozen visionaries um, identified. And the question is, where do you where do you go next? Do you do another three books, or do you just a, a single volume? Uh, quite honestly, the uh, the expense of doing three books at once is, is was extreme. And so uh, my my guess is that the next one will be a single volume. And okay, so which single volume? If you only get to do one, who do you do? And the person whose name I won't reveal. Um, but uh, like, what what's the goal? Like, what 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 do they have to satisfy? We've staked out a particular territory with these uh, existing three books. That's a, a territory in craft, a territory in, you know, sort of persona. And do you play within that territory or do you push its boundaries? Do you go, do you go wider? And I, I, I believe the answer is you go wider, right? You actually, you actually, you go outside. And in general, uh, where my interest is for not only the next one, but the next couple books is, is to step outside of romance languages. And so to look, to, 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 to look at, uh, to look at content outside romance languages. And so that's, that's my general uh, intuition. Not that there isn't quite a lot, you know, still to uh, celebrate and elevate, you know, inside romance languages. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with RJ Andrews about data visualization and the Information Graphic Visionaries book series. So, so now I wanna, I wanna loop back to kind of who, who you are and what you do before books, or maybe during books as well. And that is your, your self-describe as a data storyteller. Uh, can, can you flesh that out a little bit for us? Uh, yes, so I'm a data storyteller. I make uh, charts, maps, and diagrams, um, usually or ideally in high stakes situations. You know, so places where a chart is going to be really valuable and, and really appreciated. So, so how how does one become a data storyteller? You know, it, so I, th I think of that from the context of a statistician asking that question, who who often found himself needing to tell stories from data. But in your, it, how did you become one? How did you prepare for this? And can you give an example that you can share? I know some of you might have private private companies you're working for that you can't share, but could you talk just a little bit about kind of examples of the kinds of things you might work on? Of course. So, how do you become one? I think you become one out of uh, a lot of probably stubbornness. Yeah, so when, when I was in grad school, I kind of recognized that I hated how information was presented on the internet. Um, I also uh, had re already recognized that I hated working as a pure engineer. I just felt that a very small portion of, you know, my person was being used to, you know, to, to do work. And so I arrived to data graphics. That's a traditional way of, uh, that's a typical way. So people arrive to data graphics from the world of graphic design. They arrive from architecture because we don't, build interesting buildings anymore. So architects look for something else to do. And then engineers like me arrive to data graphics. So it's sort of like a, a traditional route to arriving to the field. You know, I was prepared because I have technical know-how and an eye for design. And um, and that's, you know, partially my upbringing by my parents and partially my, my formal training in engineering. But really it's sort of the interest in the intersection between technology and, and people, right? Human problems. What, you, what I learned as an engineer is that uh, technology is pretty much never the problem. Like technology is like, we kind of solve technology, honestly. Like it's people, people are the hard part. Uh, people is what, what makes things thorny and, and complex. And that's also like where all the, you know, like the magic and wonder is too. So that's, that's how I arrived to uh, data storytelling. And how do you get good at it? I, I think that how you get good at it is you survive, meaning you keep working at it and you figure out a way to persist. Um, because as you persist, you, there's a sort of combinatorial sort of effect of, 
um, you learn more, but also all your competition will fall away. You know, everybody else quits uh, because it's it, it it's it's a strange field. It's a niche field, and um, you know, it's one where almost everybody has to kind of figure out their own business model in order in 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 order to in order to thrive. And so I'm very lucky, you know, through um, uh, you know some chance and quite a lot of people who have been very generous to me over the years that I, I I'm still here and I've been able to. You know, I've been been able to stick around long enough to learn learn a bit. I'm looking at one of your infographics on your site right now, Bloom. So I'm a gardener, and mm. uh, this one caught my eye immediately. Um, and so for those of you who obviously can't see it, it is a graph that sort of shows the, the blooming cycle of the gardens at Monticello. And I just kind of was wondering as I was watching this, sort of what spurred it? And kind of how did you – why did you decide to approach it in this way? Because I don't know that I've seen – anything presented in quite this manner. Yes. So I think that uh, there's always a lot of different aspects that inspire um, a chart. So sometimes it's content, sometimes it's form. Usually you have a piece of each. So you have some kind of story you want to tell, but you also have like a sense of a way that you want to tell it. And so there's a, a phenomenal uh, creator named Eleanor Lutz, who is, I believe now at the New York Times, I think she's still at the New York Times, um, she wasn't when she when I discovered her, but she would make these huge like GIF contraptions. Um, and so, looking at her work, I was like, I want to, I want to try to do something like that. Okay, so that's like the form, right? The pure form. Like, I want to make a GIF. I want to make a really fancy GIF. And what you're looking at is a GIF. It's a huge GIF, I think. And then there's the content. And so, what's the content? Well, the content is I was, you know, uh, I traveled to Monticello, and I forget, I forget the spark. But at some point, I figured out that they actually record their, their flower blossoming data. So when at Monticello do flowers start blooming? And they have, you know, an, a rather extraordinarily, you know, a vast garden of different, d- different horticulture. And so, um, and so that's sort of like, that's like the intersection, right? Like you have this idea for a story, you, you, you have some data, and you have, you have a format that you want to play with. And you play, you play out in public for a lot of reasons. One, one, you're playing because you're trying to figure out a new technology, right? And that technology, if you figure that out, maybe that becomes your thing. Maybe you'll do it again. Maybe you'll figure out you hate it. You never want to do it again. Um, but you're also playing in public because you're trying to attract attention to yourself. Well, first off, you're trying to attract mentors, you know, people who can teach you, people who can give you a critique. You know, now, you know, it's several years since I published that. What, what do I do now? Like now I'm on back channels. This is the thing I'm working on. What do you think? How can it get better? You know, what else should I be looking at? Where do you think this should go? You know, those types of questions. But when you're starting fresh, you don't have those, you don't have those back channels yet. And so you're putting a lot of like, you know, work out in public and, um, and, and, and hoping that people respond enough so that you can learn how to do it better the next time. Yeah, I, I appreciate sort of getting a, a little glimpse into your creative process, this di- the idea of content and form. And I've, I've enjoyed seeing some other examples of, of content and form that, that you've, you've featured. Uh, the, uh, the Neil and Buzz interactive for Apollo 11 was one that, that I found really, really attractive. I, I also would give a, a tip of the hat to the, the hand-typed California elevation map. That also brought a smile for me. But, but I, could you talk a little bit about kind of this, this story that you wanted to tell the, about the Apollo 11 and the, the moon, the, the lunar landing? Right. So we were approaching the 50th anniversary of the landing, and I am a uh... I don't know if I'm still a space nerd, but um, I certainly was a space nerd at some point. And I think that I, I, I was very lucky that I got to work uh, for NASA at the Kennedy Space Center. I worked on the on the shuttle and the facilities around the shuttle for a, a little bit. And it was an extraordinary experience. But even though 
I'm an engineer and I work for NASA. I realized that I had like very little human context about what happened on the moon. Like I knew that they sort of like one small step for man and they planted a flag. I knew they took some photos and there was something about experiments, but I had no idea like what did they do? How long were they there? Like what's the territory that they covered? Like I had no human understanding of what the heck went on up there. And, um, and so it was that sort of, um, that sort of curiosity gap that propelled the story into being. And so what the story seeks to do is to give you a human sense of both the time and space involved with that first uh, lunar landing. I, as I was looking through these, I, I teach a, a multimedia journalism class, and in the class, the students have to create very basic infographics. It's just a chance to, for them to get their hands wet um, doing something, and then they go to a more advanced class eventually where they're actually doing something a bit fancier. But they're always a little daunted by the idea of visualizing data, and I show them a lot of, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois stuff and Florence Nightingale stuff, some of those early infographics that are like, like, look, people drew these by hand. You can manage this thing that you're working with. And I wonder, what advice would you have for someone who is just starting down this path of exploring, like, what they can do with data viz? Like, what should they be thinking about? How should they approach things? Like, what advice would you have for them? Uh, so I, I think one is I would, I would make sure that they understand some of the context around both Nightingale and Du Bois, uh, either or both. So first off, um, they both were teams of people in order to produce those graphics and that those teams of people or, or them themselves were, were already experts at making charts. And so Du Bois in particular can be, I think, a little misleading because his charts appear, I wouldn't say crude, but like a little homespun. And, and, and part of that is how they were produced, like the, the, the time pressures that they're producing. But it's also like very specific storytelling decisions that he's making. Du Bois published a year earlier uh, lots and lots of uh, charts that you know we would consider more rote and traditional. And so don't be misled that because these things look simple or easy that they are. Like they're actually being created by very, very sophisticated makers who have a lot more experience than you do if you're just starting out. And also like uh, survival bias, right? And so um, why are these charts famous? Well, they're partially famous because Du Bois is famous and Nightingale is famous. And they're not famous first for their charts. They're famous for other reasons. And, and, and so there's a certain like kind of survival bias when you look at any, like a lot of stuff from history. It's like, these are the winners. Like there's, there's you know, the dustbin of charts that we've forgotten about is, is, is vast. And so, don't, you know, don't, it's fun to look at these inspiring things, but don't let them, you know, be too daunting. Uh, so that's maybe the first thing to think about. The second thing to think about is don't, don't start with trying to make your own kind of custom chart. I would say focus really hard on a bar chart or a line graph, probably a bar chart, and try to get really, really good at making a bar chart because most of our bar charts today suck. They just do not do as much as a bar chart can do. Uh, bar, and so I would actually study really, really simple bar charts, like a lot of really, really simple bar charts, and learn how to make a really, really good bar chart because you can tell fantastic stories with, uh, with, with just by, by using bar charts. You know, one of the things that, that I, I, I think about with is how much technology changes and some of the tools for, for even producing these, these images have changed. When, when I was in graduate school, I was, I, I was playing with chemistry software because it was one of the few tools for producing a three-dimensional object at the time. So it's, it's just to me fascinating to think about, you know, 
when you, you do have have the as you mentioned the idea of of content and form, but but some of the form is also shaped by some of the tools. So do you find yourself always, you know, kind of gearing up to uh, or keeping current with new tools, or how how do you sort of balance kind of thinking about these stories that you're telling and the tools that you're bringing in to tell the stories? Uh, I have one set of tools that is constant through all my work, which is a paper and pencil. It is the it is the it is the most uh, it is the you know the the most useful and sort of creative you know, linkage between the human mind and 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 external reality and so that's constant and nearly everything else is a mess I think that one thing is once you once you learn how to kind of like learn like three or five tools you realize that they all operate under very similar metaphors. And so it becomes easier and easier to pick something up. Um, there's a lot of creators and I sort of sometimes wish I was this kind of creator who have one digital tool that they, they kind of do everything in and that's their thing and all their work, you know, gets a certain aesthetic, you know, look and, you know, maybe sometime I'll find my vibe or I'll settle on a vibe. But right now I, I usually, you know, have to relearn a tool, you know, for each new project. And so um, I've been working on a project related to, let's say, American landforms. And we're doing it with a tool, a 3D modeling tool called Blender. I'm doing this um, creative collaborator out of Shanghai. And so we're doing it with this 3D modeling tool named, uh, called Blender, which she has a lot of experience in, and I had no experience in going into it. And so that's really interesting because I get exposure to some of you know, her talents and expertise you know, just from the, the technology side. And you know, what's the, what, what's the end result? Like, I, I don't know if I'm gonna be spending a lot more time in this tool. It's, re it's really hard. And like the things that I like to do are really slow. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, always, always learning. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. RJ, thank you so much for being here yeah, today. Thank you, RJ. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter at Stats and Stories, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu. Or check us out at statsandstories.net and be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.